She's back. After a well-deserved sabbatical, Mishkan's founding rabbi took to the bima at our February 9th Friday night Shabbat service. In a wide-ranging sermon, Rabbi Lizzie addressed the ongoing Israel-Hamas war and called on all of us to do the difficult work of believing that a peaceful future is still possible. Take it away, Rabbi. So a few of you said to me over the course of this past week, you know, just lovingly, you know, a lot's riding on this Friday night. (laughs) People are really going to be listening to what you have to say now that you're back from sabbatical, Rabbi Lizzie. No pressure. It's okay. I love my job. So, okay. Last week's Torah reading, last week's, described... All the Jewish people and all of the not Jewish people who escaped Egypt with them, adults, children, men, women, everybody, all the people standing at Sinai receiving Torah all together. And one of my favorite bits of Midrash, of sort of rabbinic fan fiction, it's not in the Torah, it's about the Torah, and it's also pretty old. Um, We are told that these two million-ish people stood at Sinai, and each one of them had their own vantage point. You know, some were tall, some were short, some were in wheelchairs, right? They had different genders, sexual orientations. They um, internalized the message differently. Some couldn't hear, some couldn't see. They still experienced Sinai. They just experienced it through their own life, through, through what was possible given their abilities and life experience and vantage point. Of course, it's two million people around a mountain. Of course they experienced something different. Um... The Midrash says that children might have heard it in the voice of their parents, the voice of God, right? Adults might have heard it in the voice of a lover. An elder might have heard it in the voice of their deceased partner, you know? Um, It didn't matter. Revelation was available to everyone, and it was different depending on where you stood. And God, we're assuming knew that all this variation in the message was taking place. After all, she created the universe. Um, If she wanted them to have the same experience, God would have figured out a way to tell everyone the same thing. But instead, the rabbis tell us this is actually a virtue. You know, the Torah 4,000 years ago and 2,000 years ago in the Midrash, our ancestors understood that different people respond differently to what's right in front of them. They see it differently. And nonetheless must build community together in the presence of those differences. Not despite those differences, not trying to quash those differences, but actually in the presence of those differences is how the Israelites needed to create the visionary society that God was inviting them into at Revelation. And so this week we go from the sublime divine experience of thunder and lightning and shofar blasts and the awesome terror of Sinai, that was last week, This week, our Parsha is called Laws. (laughs) 
Mishpatim. It's like a real buzzkill. It's, it's still part of the revelation. It's still part of the revelation, but instead of like doing shrooms, it's more like pulling a torts law book off the shelf. I had to look up torts because I thought that's what it was, but then I was like, is that? And it is. Um, right? <laughs> that was last week. So, like, after the Ten Commandments of last week, this week it's literally hundreds of laws spanning the gamut of scenarios describing how to create this new and visionary Israelite society made of freed slaves. And so some of our best and most powerful ideas are in this week's Torah reading, um, just hidden in tort law. So, for example, right now, Rabbi Stephen mentioned this week officially is Repro Shabbat, um, the week that Jews across America are affirming our commitment to reproductive health care, including access to abortion. Why do Jews the world over for thousands of years basically be pro-choice? Why is that? Well, I mean, right, we debate everything. Um, and so why isn't our internal debate in the Jewish community as rich about, for example, access to abortion? We learn the answer in this week's Torah portion. And it's, well... Here's the story. There's this awful case, a scenario, a case law. A guy pushes a woman who's pregnant, and she miscarries. He is responsible for paying for her damages. Now, if he injures her, her physical body, if he kills her, then it's eye for eye, tooth for tooth, life for life. And the rabbis of the Mishnah and the Talmud look at this and say, aha, so if you hurt a live person, hurt or kill a live person, example, a pregnant woman, the offender is liable for her life. But if she miscarries the fetus, God forbid, you're only responsible to pay damages. Therefore, they say, a fetus must not be considered a full life. That's the logic. Until birth. Period. End scene. We don't encourage abortion. However, we don't consider it to be murder. You understand the distinction? And so... Our people have gone with that for thousands of years. And while different sects among our people deal differently with the question of, you know, reproductive health care, birth control, all that stuff, at the end of the day, this ethos has produced a pretty sex-positive pro-choice religion on the whole, on the whole. For all that Torah can be archaic and has a lot that needs reinterpreting, I'm always astounded and grateful for the places where even if it's hiding Torah is more progressive than our own modern political landscape. <laughs> this isn't the direction you were expecting me to go tonight when you were like, a lot's riding on tonight, huh? Don't worry, I got more directions to go. Um, I actually, I wanted to read you a few more classic verses from this week's Torah portion because otherwise you won't hear them unless you go read Parshat Mishpatim, which I recommend. Um, and I want you to hear them. And, and I'm about to leave out hundreds of verses and just read like five. So from Exodus 22. You will not mistreat a widow or an orphan. If you lend money to the poor among you, don't act as a creditor. Don't charge interest. You shall neither side with the mighty to do wrong, nor shall you show deference to the poor in a dispute. You should be fair and even-handed. I like this one. When you see the ass of your enemy, it's donkey, lying under its burden, and instinctively you would refrain from raising it, you must nevertheless raise it, emo, with him. And then finally, of course, this is in chapter 23, 
You shall not oppress a stranger, for you know the feelings of the stranger, having yourself been strangers in the land of Egypt. And that last one's repeated 36 times in the Torah, more than anything else. And I just think, especially given what I talked about earlier in this world that we live in, that can sometimes make it feel like being Jewish is a liability. For me, it is really important to be brought back to the touchstones of what makes Judaism interesting, profound, complex, beautiful, challenging, right? You know? That's why I became a rabbi, to do that, to teach Torah. But lately, and if you heard the sermon I gave right before I left, standing here at the end of October, I was really questioning, what's the role of a rabbi right now? It certainly doesn't seem like it's to teach Torah. Do I want to be a rabbi anymore? It feels like instead of teaching Torah, being a rabbi became being a combination emotional first responder, as well as public relations and marketing expert. Right, tending to the wounded and the traumatized here in Chicago, and also saying just the right words so that the fewest number of people will write angry emails and tell you you're siding with the wrong victim, no matter what you said. Do you all know what I'm talking about? Has this happened in your personal life or on your own Facebook page? Maybe. And these two jobs often kind of play off each other and amplify each other. And you don't have to have known someone who died or was kidnapped on October 7th, for that matter. You don't have to know someone in Gaza to be traumatized by what happened and what has happened since October 7th. The Jewish people, I believe, always carry with us some amount of latent generational trauma. It is part of our core narratives. Think of the story of Passover and the story of Purim and Tisha B'Av and Auschwitz. Like it, it is a story we carry with us of having been persecuted wherever we have been and oppressed wherever we have gone. But events like October 7th, even in the midst of a free society like living here in Chicago, bring up to the surface all of that fear and trauma, and we begin acting from a place of that trauma. And I want to invite us to take a deep breath and exhale. <laughs> because often the first thing to go when we're feeling stressed and under attack is our breath. The Torah describes the Israelites in the midst of Egypt. They couldn't even hear Moses offering them a way out because they were kotzer ruach. They were short of breath. God bless you. When we're operating from a place of trauma, we often see threats that are actually present, which is how we evolved. And then we see threats that might be present or that we think could be present or that we're reading into a newspaper article or something that maybe a Mishkan rabbi said or a friend said or somebody at work that you're not exactly sure what they meant by it, but maybe what they meant by it wasn't, wasn't right. And suddenly, even the spaces that felt safe and good a few weeks earlier, we wonder, is this place safe for me? Do I belong here? Is there a space for me here? Right? Is it, is it safe for me to love and bleed for my Israeli brothers and sisters without equivocation in a world where they are very alone? 
certainly feel very alone, which I do. Yes. Is it safe to say, I don't want Gazan children to pay the price for Hamas's war? Which I don't. Yes. When we're operating from a place of trauma, our defenses go up, and sometimes we're suspicious of the motives, even of our friends and even of communities we've been in for years. And, and, it's, and it's like hurtful to everybody in the situation. And given all of this community trauma, and, and that word has been used so much to describe so many of the interactions um, I have spoken with you about over the last many months, some folks have asked whether I timed the sabbatical maybe a little bit wrong. Uh, and I said, you know, Hamas has already done enough damage. They don't get to destroy my sabbatical, too. And I also had the, same, had the feeling that these issues would be here when I returned, which, of course, they are. But they've shifted. For example, back in October and November in Israel, there was no appetite to not respond to Hamas's egregious, brutal, horrific attack, to not respond with massive force, right? There was no appetite to not respond with massive force. And to suggest so from over here really made it sound like you were telling the world's only Jewish state, attacked for being a Jewish state, that it didn't have the right to self-defense, which it does. However, a few months later, just last week, Rabbi Daniel Hartman, an Israeli rabbi and thought leader, said, people calling for a, what's called in Hebrew, hafsakat esh, ceasefire, now, many of them are the families of the hostages. They're protesting every Saturday night and saying that with every passing day of this war, it makes it less and less likely that their family members will come home. And you can't accuse those families of being anti-Israel for wanting a ceasefire. I spoke with a great Hartman Institute fellow, Shoshana Cohen, this past, what was it, yesterday? She said, and she, she's, you know, in from Israel teaching a bunch of rabbis. She said, it's the weirdest thing. In Israel, the hostage, like advocating on behalf of the hostages is like a lefty thing. And weirdly, here in America, if you focus on the hostages, you're weirdly like on the right. What's up with that? And I agree. What's up with that? But now, and, and what she said and described is, is the protest movement is back. People are calling for Bibi's removal. The past, this week, there were 30 Israeli organizations that came together asking for a hafsakat esh, a cease of fire, to, be, to translate directly. The landscape in Israel has changed, and people are looking at the same facts differently. Some of the same people are looking at the same facts now four months later very differently. And so are we here in Chicago. And so like Sinai was this defining moment for the Jewish people, I think October 7th very much also was and continues to be. And like at Sinai, we all experience things differently depending on who we were, and yet we were expected to build a society together in the presence of difference. That's true here too, at least at Mishkan. And I'm incredibly committed to that principle, that vision. And while I and Jewish leaders have been under immense pressure 
really, for months. And I, I mean, I, I came back from the sabbatical refreshed and human, as you heard me describe, and I looked around at the landscape of my colleagues. Everyone is bone tired. Everyone is exhausted to the point of tears almost all the time. And there is so much pressure to have the right message, the right thing. Like every single week, there is someone pulling in some direction to make sure that you're saying the right thing so that you are more on message with their, with their vision. And it's like, it's all of the various people who have been in touch have really important good points to make. And some of them are in conflict. But none of the people I've talked to are evil or bad or don't deserve to be in this community. I feel like my first and most important job, our job, is to help create a community that's capable of holding sincerely felt difference in the midst of a heartbreaking situation that threatens every day to drive us apart from each other. Because that's what that trauma instinct does. It makes us think that the people we thought we could trust, we can't really trust them. They're not really here for us. Really? Have you just asked them recently how they're doing, what they're thinking about, and why? But like Hamas doesn't get to take away my sabbatical, they also do not get to divide us from each other. Because if they do, then they win. There have been dozens of thousands of people displaced from their homes to living in hotels all around, the, all around the country. So I called our tour guide from our, was it 2022? Our 2022 trip, um, Karmit. And she lives in a, a village in the north that we visited right along the Lebanon border, and she was evacuated. Um, I sent her a WhatsApp message asking her, what can we bring? What can I bring on behalf of the community for you? And she left me 10 minutes of two-minute-long WhatsApp messages. But the thrust of her ask was that we send hope. She said, people here are so defeated. They don't believe peace could ever be possible. Not now, not ever. And they're acting like a people who doesn't believe peace is possible. She said, but I live in the north. 20% of Israel is not Jewish, it's Arab and, and other races, ethnicities. She said, we have been living together and working together up here in the north for as long as we've all lived here. We've been doing it for decades. We've been building a society across our differences. There is a lot of work to do, she said, before Palestinians and Israel share in the bounty of this democracy equal equally. But she said, it's, it's a model for what's possible. We have done it and we can do it, but we don't believe it anymore. We need you from the vantage point of the society you live in, where people build across difference, to remind us that we can do it too. She said, Israelis and Germans now drink beer together. America and Japan are in a nice relationship now. Countries, people that have been enemies can make peace, but they have to believe that it's possible. She said, please, please just bring hope. And I know people around the world looking at the situation in Israel and in Gaza wonder if this could possibly end, if this cycle of violence and retribution and more violence and more hatred and statements for the destruction of the other people from leaders 
in charters, right? Like there is a lot working against the idea of hope. And yet, if we can't imagine it, it's not possible. And if they can't imagine it, it's not possible. There will only be a time when I'm not woken up in the middle of the night by texts and emails and, you know, here, here's what you should say and here's why you should say it about an issue on the other side of the world. That will stop happening and I can go back to being the kind of rabbi I interviewed for rabbinical school for when we can hold and believe in hope and so can they. And so, so, so we need to. So that's just our job. I don't see any other way. Um, and that, for anyone who wonders, what does pro-Israel look like? That, for me, that's what it is. It's also pro-Palestine. It's pro-people living in that region, figuring out together how to live in the same land without killing each other ad ome ad until the end of time. I believe that we can, we, we here in Chicago can transcend our trauma for the sake of building a richer, stronger community, a community that asks hard questions, that looks at ourselves in the mirror, and that grows lovingly and through challenge and conversation. And there is now a generation of Israeli and Palestinian children who don't believe that there is peace to be made with people on the other side, but their minds could be changed. Their minds could be changed by their parents, by what they see, by who they talk to, by organizations that are doing the work of teaching the future differently, teaching the past differently and teaching the future differently. So I want to ask us, you know, as you eat dinner tonight, as you talk to whoever you talk to over the course of the weekend, this is a topic of conversation that evokes immense stridency. Like we all become military experts when we have this conversation. It's amazing. I want to ask us to ask each other the question of what's, what's your vision for peace? What's your vision? And, and to, to not live in the conflict for Shabbat, just for today, for a day when we're supposed to dream and see where it takes us on the other side. We can hold out that vision as unlikely as it may feel right now. We can support organizations, and there are many that are living that vision that are doing the work day in and day out. It is thankless, and people send them nastier emails than they send me, people in Israel and Palestine who are working across difference. It is traitorous, and it is brave. And the least we can do is offer ourselves up as bolstering support for anyone who believes in the necessity of building a society along people whose experience differs from our own. We as Jews, we've been doing it a long time. We know it's possible. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Replay is a production of Mishkan Chicago. Our theme music was composed and performed by Kalman Strauss. You can always see where and when our next service will be on our calendar. There's a link in the show notes. And if you appreciated the program, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. I know you've heard it before, but it really does help. On behalf of Team Mishkan, thank you for listening. Thank you.